I can't tell you how pleased I am to be back at the Asping Chapel. I mean, I hope to have been there in person, but that's not possible. But technology is going to do its thing and allow us to have some kind of interaction. I, I am so in love with what you all do there and with what you know, Nicholas does and Barbara does and all the people there are just so amazing. It's my loss um, for, for not being there in person. Maybe your game, though. Who knows? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you're not going to think that. But we'll see as my little presentation goes on. So I want to start from the following premise. Now, you may not accept what I'm about to say, which is fine. And you can talk about it later amongst yourselves and dismiss it if you want. But I think we're in a very dangerous situation, and I think there are ways out of it. So let me lay out what I think is going on, and let me work through uh, to, I wouldn't say a solution, but to a way to work through what I'm calling the dark night of, of humanity. So I believe that humanity is going through a dark night of the soul. We can see it manifesting in the war in Ukraine and the occupation of Palestinian territories and the oppression of the Uyghurs in racism and anti-Semitism and violence against women, queer folk, Jews, Muslims, Christian, Hindus, Asians, in the weakening of democracies and the strengthening of autocracies. We can see it in the global environmental disaster that's, I was gonna say slowly happening, but it's not slow anymore. It's just collapsing right around us. And it's cataclysmic. And its impact on humanity and all other species is gonna be cataclysmic. Millions of us, I think, I fear, millions of us will die from drought and famine and flood and fires and hurricanes and tsunamis and pandemics and rising seas and mass killings and civil unrest. There's going to be a huge migration of people from countries most vulnerable to climate disaster. And this migration will threaten already weakened democratic countries and fuel a rise in fascism as desperate people fearful of the other will back authoritarians and fascist regimes without regard for the welfare of others. Okay, nice talking with you, <laughs> right? I mean, it's sort of dark. And maybe you think I'm overplaying it. I don't think so. But it's a good contrast to what I hope is coming. So where does this dark night come from? I mean, we could, we could discuss all kinds of options. But I want to just focus on one. I suggest this dark night is being fueled by what Albert Einstein called humanity's optical delusion of dualistic consciousness. And what that is, is seeing the world in a way that separates person from person and person from planet. And even worse, pits person against person and person against planet. If we're to move through this dark night, we have to cultivate a new consciousness, one that honors differences and the uniqueness of each life while at the same time knowing that all life is a manifesting of a non-dual aliveness, maybe with a capital A, aliveness, the way all waves are the manifesting of the ocean that waves them. So this presentation is about cultivating this new consciousness. 
and making a shift from what Judaism calls mohin de katnut, literally narrow mind, the mind of the ego, the mind of self, the mind of selfishness, not that we can do without ego and self, but we can do without the extremes. It needs to be balanced. So we make this shift from mohin de katnut, narrow mind, to mohin de godlut, literally spacious mind, the mind of self with a capital S, and self-transcendence, seeing self and other as part of this greater aliveness. Now, I'm going to do this by referencing several Jewish texts and one Jewish contemplative practice, but you can find texts from other traditions that will make the same point, and you can find practices that will achieve the same end from a variety of religious traditions. So let's start with the book of Genesis. Now, I don't take the Bible literally, and I don't believe the Bible is history. I believe the Bible is story. I believe the Bible is a human creation, and that some of the people who created the Bible stories were brilliant sages whose hearts were open, and some were fascistic, you know, closed-minded, closed-hearted people uh, who wrote texts to get to create a society in their image, while the open-hearted wrote texts that they hoped would lead to a society in their image, you know, an open society. So I don't want to say, oh, the Bible is true, and therefore it says this, so we must believe. that. That's not my approach. Anyone who knows me knows that's my, my approach. But I think story matters. And I think, especially here in the West, Bible stories matter most. The Bible, along with Shakespeare, especially the King James Bible, but King James Bible along with Shakespeare really creates the Western European North American mindset. So let's look at the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we find two different and mutually exclusive understandings of humanity. The first comes from Genesis chapter one, where humanity is created after everything else is thriving, right? We're created in the last day of creation. Everything else is doing fine. The animals are doing fine. The forests are doing fine. The seas and the fish are thriving. Everything is doing great. And then for no particular reason, God, now for me, it's a character in the story. So the character in the story called God says to whomever God says it, let us make humanity in our image after our likeness. Why? There's no need for them. Everything is fine without them. They're literally where everything else sort of, you know, the first you get the seas and then you get the fish. There's always a, you know, a sort of an evolution consciousness that goes on in the, in the, in the six days of creation until you get to people and people are just created. Uh, you know, God has a thought and then poof, there are people. We're literally Humans are literally, in Genesis 1, an afterthought. And there's no point to us. So we have to have a point. So the storyteller says, we're here to rule over everything else that was created. In Genesis 1, humanity has no innate connection to the earth. So what do you do now that you're here? You're an alien, and you're alien to everything else. You feel alienated maybe by even being here. So what do you do to make yourself feel comfortable? You dominate it, and that's what the Bible says. 
God says to these alien beings uh, who are not from the earth, just plopped onto it, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every living thing that moves upon the earth. That's the job of humanity is to dominate and rule over nature. I think it's this fantasy of human domination that, fe- that fuels this dark night. But it's not the only option you get from the Bible. It's the one that most people focus on for good or you know, either to, to applaud it or to you know, uh, criticize it. But it's not the only one. If you keep reading and you get to chapter two, you find a completely different story written at a different time by different people. And in the story of the creation of humanity in, in chapter two, the earth is barren. In chapter one, everything is thriving and people are an afterthought. In chapter two, nothing is growing because the Bible says two things are missing. One is water and the second is us. Seeing us as intrinsic to the creation process, to nature. So the first thing God does is God causes water to come up from the ground. And then in in exactly the opposite manner of Genesis 1, where God in the ether, you know, just out of thought says, let's create people and plops them on the earth. In Genesis 2, God takes the earth itself, which is now malleable, moist, muddy, from the water that's risen, that's risen up and fashions an Adam. That's the Hebrew, Adam, which most people or most Bibles translate as man, which is wrong. Adam was whoever wrote the story. Adam was used because it's a play on words. The earth out of which the Adam comes, the earth is called Adama. It's a feminine term. And the earth gives birth to the Adam. We are literally birthed by nature, which is true biologically, but here in the story, it's also true. God doesn't make us outside, you know, supernaturally and plop us down. God brings us up uh, naturally from the earth. And then God breathes consciousness into us. Later in the story, God then gives um, the mission to humanity. What, why are you here? Remember in the first one, it's to dominate. But in the second chapter, the mission is very, very different. God says, you're here to serve and guard life. It's a task, this serve and guard, it's a task made all the more, I think, profound when you know that the Hebrew word for serve, which is avodah, is literally means to serve, is the same word that Jews use when talking about worship. Avodah is serving the planet and worshiping the deity. In other words, serving the planet is a sacred act of worship. Very different than the dominion argument in Genesis 1. Now, I think it's too late to escape the dark night. It's already happening. But it's not too late to learn how to navigate it in such a way that brings us some sense of hope and ultimately 
peace, justice, compassion. And I think key to it is to shift from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, to shift our consciousness from imagining humanity's role as dominating, and that means dominating everything and everyone, to a role of service as sacred worship. One other way to explain the mission that humanity has in Genesis 2 is found in a, in a phrase, uh, chapters later, Genesis 12, verse 3, where it's called being a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that's what we have to shift to, from being the ruler to being a blessing. Now, how you do this requires a shift in our worldview, a shift away from the parochial and the tribalist to something that I call perennial or perennial wisdom. So perennial wisdom is the fourfold truth found at the mystic heart of all religions. Each religion will articulate it in its own way, but they're basically saying the same four things. Mystics are basically saying the same four things. I mean, I learned this from Father Thomas Keating, you know, back in 1984 when he, he uh, convened the first snow mass group and invited me to be part of that. And it was clear from the time we were together, and it went on 35 years, but it was clear from the very beginning that these mystics that he had gathered around him were all experiencing this non-duality, that we're all part of the same process, and that we're called to be of sacred service. So my way of articulating the perennial wisdom that... Uh, I, I sort of gleaned from Father Thomas, is this way. The first four points. The first point, all life is a manifesting of non-dual and dynamic aliveness. You can call it God. You can call it Brahman. You can call it Allah, Mother, Dharmakaya. It, it, there's millions of names for this thing. I choose aliveness for two reasons. One, it's, it's a Hebrew term, chiyut. We'll get to it a little bit later. But so it's got roots in my own tradition, but it also doesn't carry the baggage that the word God carries. So all life is a manifesting this non-dual aliveness. Number two, human beings have an innate capacity to awaken in, with, and as this aliveness. I mean, you've heard this in every tradition. We have this innate capacity to awaken in, with, and as this aliveness. And a little bit later, I'm going to share a way to actually have that awakening. Number three, awakening to aliveness calls us to treat all life with compassion, justice, and respect, to uh, serve and guard, or like I said from Genesis 12, 3, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And it says all the families of the earth. It doesn't say human families, all the families, human and otherwise. And the fourth point is awakening to aliveness and being a blessing comprise the highest calling of every human being. This is our mission, which I think is in line with Genesis chapter two. So to accept perennial wisdom, however it's articulated, to awaken to aliveness spiritually, to practice living on earth as a blessing, requires a new way of seeing. So let me go back to Einstein. Einstein said that the root problem is this optical delusion of dualistic consciousness. Optical, the way we see, suggests falsely that there's self and there's other. 
and that there's no connection between us. What we know is that's false, right? We know that you and I, and you and I and all beings, sentient and, and otherwise, you and I and all beings are manifestings of this non-dual aliveness, just the way every wave is a manifesting of the ocean that waves it. So we have to see, literally, we have to see the world differently. So let me talk to you about something that's called the philosophy or the ethic of the face. This comes from the mid 20th century from a French Jewish philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas. And in essence, he says this, when you see the face of another being, human or otherwise, when you see the face of another, you see the other as unique, but not separate. You see the other as unique. And that very act of seeing inwardly commands you to treat that face, that other, with justice, compassion, and love. At the very least, Levinas says, you're commanded not to kill the other. I mean, just imagine the impact. I mean, certainly with humans, right? You see the face of another and you're commanded inwardly to be a blessing to that person, but certainly not to kill them. But then think in terms of animals. I mean, it's, it's easy for me who hasn't had beef in 40 years to say, oh, I look at the face of a cow and of course I can't kill it. But if you're a meat eater, it's a real challenge. And it's a challenge to me as a fish eater. Luckily, all my fish comes from a can. I never see its face, but that's a cop out. I know that. So it's important to realize from Levinas's point of view, this command doesn't come from a god. It comes from the very act of seeing itself. So obviously he's talking about a, I don't, I'm going to say a special way of seeing. That's, I don't think he would actually uh, clarify, uh, qualify it that way, but it's coming from the act of seeing itself. Seeing the other's face in and of itself makes a moral demand that Levinas says places the other's, ne the other's needs above your own because you may want to just ignore the person you're looking at, let alone kill them. You might want to just walk right by them and, and maybe they're in need of, of help and you just ignore it. The Bible says, you know, you don't stand idle when the blood of a neighbor is being shed. So, and they, and the rabbis, you know, interpret that in a very broad sense. So it's not just literally someone's wounded, but you may, you may give them the choice, choose not to see that person and just walk by. But Levinas is saying, once you see them, you can't walk by, even though you might want to walk by them, even though you have other obligations, you can't do it because the needs of the other somehow trump in that moment your own. You're called to be a blessing by the very act of sin. Now I want to switch from Levinas to Martin Buber, their contemporaries. Scholars are careful not to blend Levinas uh, with Buber, his ethic of the face with Buber's I and thou thing. But I've, I'm not a scholar. And I'm not that careful. So I think you can do it. For Buber, every face is the face of God, just like every wave is the waving of the ocean that waves it. Just like in perennial wisdom, every life is a manifesting of aliveness. So to see the face of the other in Buber's understanding is to actually see the face of God, to know the other as God, and in that knowing, to know yourself as God as well. 
So Buber sees a mutuality. I see your face, you see my face. We both, you know, feel this ethic of the face and are commanded not to, to do no harm. And we both see each other as the face of God. Levinas says you don't even need the mutuality. He doesn't care. If the other person doesn't see you that way, that's not your problem. If you see them that way, you're obligated, even if it's not a mutual obligation. My question is, so what does it take to see the face of the other to, and to see it ultimately as the face of God? Especially when you read on in the Bible, in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God tells Moses, nobody can see God's face and live. That's Exodus 33:20. You can't do it. But the book of Psalms says that God, in fact, commands us to, it says, seek my face. That's Psalm 27, verse 8. How can you have it both ways? No one can see God's face and live. And then God says, you know, seek my face. From the Kabbalistic perspective, the seeming paradox is, is resolved this way. God says, seek my face. And when you see my face, you cannot live as you used to live before you saw my face. Again, the act of seeing is transformative. Before you see the other's face, you felt free to live in a dualistic world of domination and oppression, Genesis 1. But after you see the other's face, you can only live in a non-dual world of compassion and justice where being a blessing is normative, Genesis 2. The question is, how do you do it? Okay, so let's get to the practice. And we'll wrap this up. So there are many practices that speak to this from many, many different traditions. I'm going to share just one, and Judaism has more than one, but I'm going to just share one practice that I think you can learn quickly and, and do if you feel called to do it. The practice is called Shiviti, S-H-I-V-I-T-I. -I. The word Shiviti means I place. And there's a mantra that goes with it that comes from the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 16, uh, verse 8. It says... Um, shiviti Adonai Lenegdi Tamid. So literally means I place Shiviti. And Adonai is a euphemism for the unpronounceable YHVH Yudhe name of God in the Bible. So I place God, Lenegdi Tamid, before me always. So whatever I see, I see God. That's the idea. Now, I don't like the euphemism Adonai. You can't pronounce yud buffet not just legally you can't pronounce it. It's four consonants and has no way to pronounce it. So the traditional way in Judaism is to say Adonai, which means Lord, which is terrible. yud is a verb. Adonai is a noun. yud is dynamic. It means the happening. That's happening is all happening. Lord is hierarchical. God's up here. You're down here. It's just, it's a disaster. So I don't use that. I use a different euphemism for the unpronounceable name of God, one I mentioned earlier, chiyut, aliveness. This one comes from the 18th century mystic Menachem Nachum Tversky. He's, he was uh, the Rebbe of Chernobyl before Chernobyl was a nuclear disaster area. This is a long time ago. And Tversky says that, uh, or offers the name of God, uh, chiyut, aliveness. So I say the mantra this way, chiviti chayut lenegdi tamid. But you could use the English, 
you know, I place the divine, I don't even like the word God, but I place aliveness before me always. I place the divine before me always. We're talking about seeing Chiyut as the face of every being we encounter. The mantra, however, speaks of Shiviti, placing. So how do you get from placing to seeing? The way it was taught to me is this. Shiviti, the act of placing, is an, an, an effort of the imagination to place awareness of the other that sees the other as the one. I, I don't really know how to put it in good English, but it's not like you're imagining a face of God and then putting on like a mask over the a face of the other. It's, it's an effort to just recognize that whatever face you're seeing to place that recognition in your consciousness so that whatever face you're seeing, you're seeing Chayut, the face of God. In a sense, it's like the Hindu practice, and this might be another way of doing this. It's like the Hindu practice of greeting another person, and I would say being, another being with the phrase Namaste. Uh, I bow to the divine. Now, sometimes they'll translate it, I bow to the divine or I honor the divine that is in you. I don't like that. I, I prefer... I, I recognize, I, I see, I bow to the divine that is you. Whenever you see another, whether it's a human being, an animal, a tree, whatever it happens to be, say to yourself, Shiviti chayut lenegdi tamid. Shiviti chayut lenegdi tamid, or chayut lenegdi tamid. And if you do that over and over again, consciously, in time, you'll come to see that the other, you'll come to see the other as the one and engage with the other in a manner aligned with service and guardianship or what Genesis 12 calls being a blessing to all the families of the earth. Being a blessing won't help us escape from the dark night that's unfolding all around us. It will help us live that dark night, navigate the dark night in such a way as to I'm going to say ensure, or at least let's say promise, that we will come out at the other end with more light and more compassion and more justice and a more thriving world. So I'm going to end with that. And again, thank you for having me, you know, visit via Zoom. And hopefully, you know, you got something out of this and it will make you think, if not actually practice, Shiviti Chiyut Lenegdi Tamid.